Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about Millennium Mailbag. So many listeners reached out to ask us to talk about more things related to the millennium. So that's what we're going to do. Start talking about the millennium and everyone comes out of the woodwork. This episode of the Wednesday Conversation is brought to you by... Tasty Pizza. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and Camille. And Camille in Long Island. Camille, came, really, she came through. Camille, we love you. Camille is our favorite listener because she just occasionally just reaches out from Long Island. She's like, hey, I need to buy you guys some pizza. And she really goes she, big too. That's what she did today was uh, this massive bacon Gouda pizza from Tasty Pizza, which is I maybe mean, the best pizza in Omaha. It's it's by far wow. the best pizza in Omaha, and it's like a, a little weird neighborhood best kept secret that a lot of people don't know about. So it's a house. It. It's a house turned into a pizza parlor. Well, yeah. Well, now it's a golf shop. Well, sure. they moved down the street to the yeah. old golf shop. Yeah. It was the place, Dusty, they used to sell like wood golf clubs there. It was like the old school golf shop in Omaha and then nobody, right bought, nobody bought those so they closed. Turned it into a pizza shop. Yeah, but we love it. If you're local to Omaha, go to Tasty Pizza. Camille, thanks for uh, providing snacks for this week's episode. And I want to, we have so many listener feedback emails to read and they're all, they're all about the millennium. So some of these we will tackle and some of them might, we might have to punt to another episode. I don't know, but I want to read some of the emails we got from various listeners over the past few weeks since our episode about the millennium. What was the episode number on that one, Bethany, that we did? I believe it was episode 441. So there you go. (laughs) All right. First of all, from Julia, thank you for today's Wednesday conversation. I think you know how this subject comes up over and over for me as a Bible study leader among Christian women friends who have all grown up in the dispensational stream. I have been accused often of not taking the Bible literally. Same. Of course you have, Julia, because those locusts are helicopters. Don't you understand? That's the literal meaning of locust is helicopter. Uh, She asked, hey, I'd like to hear you talk more about what it means to take the Bible literally. And we are going to tackle that in just a minute. It, it, It relates to a question we received from another listener. So I think that'll be helpful. Jeff, listener Jeff says this. Thanks so much for the podcast. I've been encouraged, enriched, and entertained since I first started listening in 2017. The best part is he's been entertained. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's what we're here for, to entertain you. Also, Jeff, did you go back and listen to the episodes before 2017? Because if you started listening in 2017, you missed out on like probably two or three years of the Wednesday conversation. So, man, you got to dial it back. Respect, Um, though. 2017, that dials back. That's a long-term listener. Jeff says, uh, along with pastoring, I teach theology and biblical studies at the college level. I would love to hear a part two that covers the interpretive approach behind each millennial view. Those interpretive approaches would be futurism, preterism, and modified idealism. Jeff says, in my studies and in my teaching, I've come to emphasize the interpretive approaches because I feel like the lights came on for me with this issue when I understood the thinking and reasons behind the views. I've also seen this make a significant impact on students in the classroom as well. It would be a lot of fun to hear you guys cover this. I like that Jeff thinks it's going to be fun to hear us talk about <laughs> interpretive approaches to Revelation. That's a guy that loves his Bible. It is fun. Amen, Jeff. So I'm going to do that now. Chris, you have Hokema's book, The Bible in the Future, open in front of you. I brought a copy of Greg Beale's uh, commentary on Revelation, published nice. in 1999. 
because Greg Beal has three pages on this that are really helpful. And so I'm just going to read. By the way, Greg Beal is the industry standard guru on this. If you if there's anyone out there who's a bigger expert on the book of Revelation than Greg Beal, I don't know who it is. So I just go to Greg Beal whenever people ask questions like this. He has a little section in his commentary called Major Interpretive Approaches. And I'm going to give, there are four of them. I'm going to give them to you in the order that I think they will make the most sense. Are you with me here, Chris? I'm tracking. Okay. You're not, you're I got actually, coffee. You're actually here. just reading. Hokum I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm just Chris getting ready here. his gun with some hokum <laughs> over there. Okay, so Jeff raises an interesting point that behind these millennial views that we talked about, which were pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, are different understandings of how to interpret the book of Revelation. Here's how Greg Beale describes them. You have, first of all, the historicist view, which sees Revelation as unfolding the successive events of history in general chronological order. Typically, this view identifies parts of the apocalypse as prophecies of, for instance, the invasions of the invasion of the Roman Empire, uh, the reign of Charlemagne, the Protestant Reformation, the destruction wrought by Napoleon and Hitler. So the historicist view basically sees Revelation as talking about all those moments in history leading up to what still is to come, which is the sort of final day of the Lord. The weakness of this view in Beale's view is that such a projection of future history would have had little relevance to first century readers of Revelation. We're going to come back to that critique because that's also the problem with the futurist view. So the historicist view of Revelation is that it speaks of things that have gone on throughout the history of the church. The futurist view of Revelation, which is held by dispensationalists and some others, sees Revelation as referring exclusively to a future time immediately preceding the end of history. And Beale says the most popular form of this is dispensational futurism, which interprets very literally and sees the order of the visions in Revelation as representing the historical order of future events. There are nine of them. I'm going to read them for you. This is the order that things are going to happen in Dusty. You're looking at this is this is the order that things are going to happen. Nine things. I'm ready. Number one, the restoration of ethnic Israel to its land. Number two, the church's rapture into heaven. Number three, a seven-year tribulation. Number four, the Antichrist's reign. Number five, the assembly of the evil nations to fight over Jerusalem. Number six, Christ's second coming when he defeats the evil nations. Number seven, his millennial reign. Number eight, Satan's final rebellion. And number nine, Christ's eternal reign. And so the futurist reading of Revelation sees Revelation talking about those nine events in order, starting at the beginning and working to the end. The problem with that view is that it would have mattered not a bit to an original reader of the book of Revelation. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you believe that Revelation is only about things that are yet to happen in the future, what you're saying is this entire 22-chapter book had no relevance to its original audience and its original readers in its original context. And that, Chris, is not a very great way to read the Bible. I mean, how amazing would that be? Here's this letter from John. You know... Not, it's not really for you. Nothing to do with it's you guys. It's for people but, living 25 centuries from now. Here, have this for the people that you will never know. Have this for later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, now it could, I get, you, it could be that. It could be that. But one of the basic principles of biblical inter- interpretation is it can't mean something now that it didn't mean to its original readers. Then. There it is. All right. So 
that's the futurist view. Then you have the idealist view. This is what Greg Beal holds. This is what I hold. This is what probably many of us would hold. The idealist approach to Revelation affirms that Revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between good and evil. And the book is a timeless depiction of that struggle. So it acknowledges that there is still a final consummation yet to come, but that the apocalypse portrays events throughout history and that specific events throughout the age extending from Christ's first coming to his second coming may be identified with one narrative or symbol. The majority of the symbols in Revelation are trans-temporal, Beale says, in the sense that they are applicable to events throughout the church age. So to take the example of the Antichrist, there have been many Antichrists throughout the church age, right? And so you don't have to say it was Hitler or it was Nero or it was, you don't have to pick a particular figure. The symbolic or the idealist view would say it's a symbolic representation of the fact that there are many world rulers who have oppressed the people of God. And there is perhaps one still yet to come who sort of gathers up all of that, but that that can speak to many different moments throughout the church age. And so the idea in the idealist reading of Revelation is that it is symbolic for the entire struggle between church between good and evil that the church is involved in. Any any editorial there, Chris? That also makes sense of I think what I mentioned on the millennial podcast of, of how the the book of revelation kind of works in cycles. So you kind of see these ebbs and flows of evil and, and good. And so when you have that interpretive framework, when you see the symbolism, you see, it just makes much more sense of the fact that this is, this could be applied to multiple things in history rather than just this one thing. Yes. Uh, the other advantage to that obviously is it would have had a lot of meaning for the original readers, because of course it applies to the persecutions of Rome against early Christians, just like it applies to the persecutions of modern world against yeah. current yep. Christians. Yep. And so it, it has resonance no matter when you read it in the course of history. A fourth interpretive approach is the preterist view. And this was uh, a question that Britton brought up in an email to us. He says, hey, thanks for the great episode on the four views of the millennium. In the next episode, could you take some time to explain the difference between the preterist and futurist views of the Olivet Discourse? There's likely a lot of listeners who may not be familiar with that position on those passages. I like that Britain just cares about our listeners. He's like, you know, I know all, I know what I need to know about this, but some of your listeners might not. Just wants to get the people informed. <laughs> get that. So want to make sure the info's out there. The preterist view sees all that happened in the book of Revelation as a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD or as a prophecy about the fall of Rome in 410 AD. So it sees these as speaking to events that have already happened in history. And so the weakness of this view in Beale's understanding is that if Revelation is a prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem, there are some inconsistencies with God's judgment of the nations versus God's judgment of Jerusalem. Because obviously his own people are going to face judgment along with the nations. But there, if you read Daniel 2 and Daniel 9, it seems like the final judgment is, God judging all the earth, not just Jerusalem. But there's also a view called partial preterism, which would say, yes, some of these events have been fulfilled in history and some are still to come. The best book on that, the book that most challenged my thinking on that, is R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. Um, and Sproul basically says, if you read the Gospels and you read all the statements where Jesus says to his disciples, the end is coming soon. You know, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. If you only believe that 
all of those things are still to come in the future. What you have to say is Jesus misled his disciples, or they they thought there was going to be some imminent coming of the Lord that never came. But that when you start to see the fall of Jerusalem as part of the fulfillment, especially of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and, and so forth, that it starts to help us understand that when Jesus said, Hey, when you, you know, when you see these things happening, you know, the, the nursing mother should, you know, grab her child and flee for the hills, that there it makes sense why he would have said that if the fall of Jerusalem is imminent. And so a partial preterism would see some of the biblical prophecies about the end times to be speaking of the fall of Jerusalem, and then some of them still to be speaking about what is yet to come. And if if that sounds if, if those four views sound very different. In one sense, they are, but I think the best way to understand how they come together is just to read the Bible with a good common sense reading, and that's where that gets us back to Julia's question about what does it mean to read the Bible yeah. literally, to take the Bible literally. This is, um, all right, our dispensationalist friends, I love you all out there, but the knock on a symbolic reading of Revelation is, okay, so you're saying the Bible's not literal. Like you're, Revelation 20 says the word millennium. And you, Chris, are saying that doesn't really equal an actual thousand years. It's just like a vague, undefined set of time. And so what you're saying is millennium doesn't mean millennium. Yes. I appreciate how he's leaning across the table at you. Yeah, like, he's like, go thing. at it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this is, well, this is the critique people yeah. make. is like, well, if you take that view, then you're not taking the Bible literally. And um, I've heard that critique a lot. And obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> Julia has in some of her yeah. Bible studies yeah. with people who tend to lean dispensationalist. I've been thinking about this long enough that I have a little bit of cynicism toward that objection now, so you're probably going to hear that come out in my response. But the way I generally respond to that objection is just to say, we all understand that God is not a rock or a <laughs> refuge, right? Like when you read the Psalms, you do, you understand when you are reading symbolic and metaphorical language. And the reason you know that is because it's just a common sense way to read that language. Yeah. Right? God is my refuge and strength does not mean God is a refuge. It means God is like a refuge. It's, it's, it's using metaphorical language. And so we just understand as we read any text, whether it's the Bible or something else, that aspects of that language are intended to evoke images, metaphors, pictures, symbols. That's very normal in how we read any text. And when we read the Bible, we just read it in that same sort of a way where there, there's a difference between reading the Bible, quote unquote, literally, and reading it for the kind of literature that it is, understanding what the words are intended to convey. Yeah. The way I say it is reading the Bible literally means reading the Bible as it's intended to be taken. So if it's intended to be taken symbolically, you read it symbolically. If it's intended to be taken literally in the sense of just straightforward reading, then read it straightforward. And so genre is important. And you made this point last time is that the reason we read Revelation the way we do is because it is apocalyptic literature, which is meant to be read symbolically. So to read it literally is actually to read against genre type. So I think that's the, mm. the, the issue that I have when people say, read the Bible literally. I'm like, well, the Bible is multiple types of genre and you are doing violence to the text when you read it against genre type. And so- Let me just, yeah. let me read an example from Revelation 1, Chris, that I think makes the point you're making. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So I got to engage my imagination to understand that. I'm just saying, unless you're going to tell me that Jesus has white hair and that his eyes are flames of fire and that his voice sounds like an ocean and that he actually was holding seven literal stars in his right hand and that from his mouth, there was a sharp two-edged sword actually coming out of his mouth as he stood there. I'm just like, well, of course, these are symbolic descriptions designed to evoke a certain vision of power and authority and majesty. They're saying something. But I don't think when it says from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword that what we're supposed to think as readers is Jesus with a huge sword sticking out. That's yeah, just yeah, weird, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yep. So you, as a reader, you see that pulling you into, okay, it's telling me something. I might need to reflect on this and say, what is it trying to communicate about? What is this sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth, right? This is, an, this is a vision and it has mm-hmm. likenesses to the visions in places like Ezekiel. And Zechariah in the Old Testament where, or even the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, where he sees the Lord seated on a throne and right. These visions of God are literal in some sense. They're telling us that somebody saw something, but they're also very descriptive and symbolic and metaphorical. Yeah. yeah. And so I just use that as an example to say, if you're going to read that literally, quote unquote, you're going to have a really weird picture of Jesus in your head. Yeah. And, and the, the point of that is not to paint a literal picture of Christ, but like you said, to point out truths about the glory and the power of Christ, like that's what it's meant to evoke. And this is the beauty of scripture. We've talked about this before. It uses multiple genres. It pulls on different parts of our understanding. It evokes uh, not only just our logic, but also imagination. And this is, let it do what it's supposed to do. Evoke imagination rather than trying to go the logical route and figure out every literal thing. Just be drawn into the imagery and the truth that imagery evokes in you. So I, I too, I have to fight back the cynicism largely because I'm like, guys, we're doing violence to scripture. When we do this, let's stop it, please. Amen. All right. Here's the other question Julia wants us to answer. How the current geopolitical nation of Israel plays into the eschatology discussion. Chris, you're going to like this. In the past several months, she writes, I've had emails from well-meaning believers telling me to be excited about two red heifers born in Texas that the current unrest in Israel is ushering in the tribulation, that the temple items are being gathered, and since the nation of Israel is composed of God's chosen people, I need to do this, that, or the other. Red heifers, huh? I'm sorry that you're getting those emails. Actually, I'm not sorry at all, Julia. Welcome to teaching the Bible. <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens when you're trying to help people understand the scripture. and like, hang on, though. Um, it's actually good. I think it's part of learning. How does the current geopolitical nation of Israel play into eschatology? I mentioned in our previous podcast on the four views of the millennium that my grandparents largely came to faith because they were studying the Bible in the wake of Israel becoming a nation for the first time in millennia. And that did seem to be a a dramatic, world-changing historical event that seemed to have connections to biblical prophecy. And so I understand why people put emphasis on this. It is not a small thing that Israel once again, is living in the promised land. But I, the best answer to this question was given by John Piper years ago in like a little two-page devotional where someone asked, hey, you know, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, the conflict over the land between the Jewish people and Arab peoples, you know, 
should Christians have one side or the other in that? You know, should they take one side or the other in that? Should we be on the side of Israel because of the Old Testament and because of God's purposes? And Piper said, listen, if Jesus was telling the truth when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, then what that means is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is a covenant-breaking people. So the current geopolitical nation of Israel means nothing. Like, unless those people are in mass converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just a nation on the map like any other nation. He, he just really demythologized what people can do with like, oh, since Israel is now living in the promised land again, does that mean we're in the end times and all this stuff is going to happen? And he's just saying, no, because the covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And so what, what God is doing now is gathering a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that people is people who put faith in Christ. That will include both Jews and Gentiles, but that means neither the Palestinians nor the Jewish people have any corner on being part of that covenant or being part of the fulfillment of God's covenant purposes in the world. So I don't think we should have any particular, I, I think it's fine to, for pragmatic reasons, say, hey, you know what, we should be in favor of Israel because it's it's a democracy in the Middle East and that's good for, you know, the flourishing of people and whatever. There, there can be good geopolitical reasons to care about that. But connecting those in weird ways to biblical prophecy and saying we have to be in favor of Israel because we need them to like, you know, actually occupy the land so that Jesus can come back and reign on the Mount of Olives and establish his millennial kingdom. None of that is true. Another thing that I've heard is in the Abrahamic promise, I will bless those who bless you. Mm. That this is like a command yeah. to, to, hey, the U.S. should bless Israel because God will bless the U.S. because they've blessed Israel. And the, the thing that I always want to point to is, well, what does the New Testament do with that promise? Where does Paul locate that promise now existing? It's those who have put their faith in Christ. Yeah, Romans 11. So if anything the U S should be blessing Christians if they mm. want to be, and that's the argument that I like to make, you know, it's wow. to try to turn it on its head. But, but in the sense of like, Hey, there, there was a blessing given to Israel, but that, that in Christ now that blessing has gone to the nations as God even said in the book in Genesis. So that this idea that, that somehow Israel has this special kind of dispensation right now to where the U S is mandated to bless them, or we should, you know, we have to bless them it's somehow that that blessing that God promised to Abraham will be ours. It's like, hey, that that's actually been extended and it's different in Christ. So yeah. e even the way you're putting the Bible together needs to be adjusted there. Well, and that's the, the main problem I have with dispensationalism is just that tendency to cleave the Bible into two parts. And we talked about having God having one plan for the people of Israel and another plan for the church. And once you see a covenantal structure to the Bible and realize that, no, those promises that God did make to Abraham and to Moses and to David— and to his people in the Old Testament. The New Testament draws those lines of fulfillment through the cross of Jesus Christ and the people of Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. That does really change the funny things some people can do with the biblical text. Okay, this is a good question. The, the, the final question I want to tackle from Nathaniel, listener Nathaniel. First of all, he says, I would like to thank you for your thoughtful and insightful discussions each week. Wednesdays have become my second favorite day of the week behind Sunday. That away. I like people. They're like, you know what I look forward to on Wednesdays? The Wednesday conversation. Thanks. That's right. Thanks, That's Daniel. Right. Your recent podcast on the four views of the millennium has been especially helpful for someone like me who grew up with relatively limited exposure to differing views on the millennium. I was brought up only hearing discussions on pre, mid, and post-tribulation. 
I would rather discuss the existence of aliens than these three views. <laughs> Same. Dude, this is my guy. So he's worn out on this stuff. But he said, I'd be interested in hearing you speak about how these differing views shape the way we live out our Christian lives. Are there sociological implications associated with how we view the millennium? Does this part of eschatology shape the way we vote, the way we view geopolitics, social justice, environmentalism, or evangelism? I'm curious to hear the practical applications. I think that's a really interesting question. All right, so Chris, take us there. What do you got? So my first thought would be this. One of the beautiful things about having an all-mill view, and, and to some degree post-mill view, but an all-mill view, is one, you can both be hopeful because you know the gospel is going to advance, that uh, people are going to become Christians, that the kingdom is advancing. But at the same time, you have a realistic expectation that there's still evil in the world, that, that Christ has not come back yet. And, and rather than getting caught up in trying to find all these, you know, the red heifers or the, they're ga- gathering this stuff for the temple. And every time somebody does something sideways in the Middle East that, you know, it's the end time, instead of getting all caught up in that, we can have a firm and secure hope that Christ is coming back, that the gospel is going forward, that Jesus has one is going to win and we can live our lives faithfully. We don't have to get up, caught up in hype, nor do we have to fall into despair. So I think properly understanding, and that is exactly what the book of Revelation is intended to do, is to point people, the people of God who are suffering, who are experiencing evil, experiencing oppression, to hope in Christ because Christ is one. So I think it grounds us, it settles us, it gives us a sense of peace, and also, in the best sense, would empower us to live faithful lives until Christ returns. All right, that's great. I think... You got a thought there? Well, so uh, what I hear you saying there is I can live with hope in the face of evil today. So that does, to his question, to this listener's question, it does impact the way that I would vote or engage anything out there on the street. Yeah, yeah. I think premillennialism, and especially dispensational premillennialism, does shape the way people view geopolitics and things like the environment. Here's why. Geopolitically, people who are dispensational pre-mill have a fascination with the Middle East. They care more about what's going on in and around Israel than anywhere else. And that leads them, I think, to have a very unhealthy kind of interest in things like, you know, are there gathering materials to build a third temple? What we miss is like right now, at this moment that we're recording this, arguably the most important geopolitical things happening are happening in Western Africa and in China and in Russia and Ukraine, but Christians who are like fascinated with the Middle East can just like ignore all those places Mm -hmm. and just be like, well, who cares? Because here's what's happening in Israel right now today. And that seems to me to be uh, unhealthy and leads to some sort of geopolitical fascination with a particular part of the world that is important, but not the only thing that matters. I also think, you know, I've never, well, I don't want to overstate here. Rarely have I met dispensationalists who have, who seem to have a healthy kind of biblical environmentalism because it's all going to burn up anyway, man. Mm-hmm. So like Jesus is just going to rain down fire and bring a new heavens and new earth. So, you know, why should we recycle? <laughs> you know, now I don't think every person is like that, but I, I do think that one of the things I said in the previous podcast is that um, dispensationalism and premillennialism tends to be a little more pessimistic about the current reality of the world. And so just tends to care a little bit less and can be in some ways so oriented toward the rapture and the future reign of Jesus that we just don't care much about the right now. Mm-hmm. Post-millennialism, 
I have such a hard time saying these words. It is a mouthful. Post-millennialism has the opposite problem, and you mentioned this in the previous podcast, that it, it tends a little bit toward theonomy for the reasons that if the reign of Christ is going to be realized here and now, if the world is going to be Christianized in a way that is noticeable, recognizable, and significant before Jesus returns— then, of course, part of how we bring that about is by instantiating Christian policies in politics and in society. And so you tend to see among post-millennials an, an advocacy of, well, God's law should be the law of the land. And so it, it tends toward a sort of a theonomy that isn't always bad, but I think that can be really <laughs> unhealthy mm-hmm. and unhelpful. Um, and so those are my thoughts on the sociological implications of the gospel or of, the, of your eschatology, rather. When it comes to voting, I would say vote wisely, vote biblically, but you don't have to vote, like you said, getting caught up in geopolitic, ge- geopolitical situations that are unbalanced. So we don't have to vote based on a particular uh, candidate's view of the Middle Eastern policy. Now, there might be practical reasons, you know, hey, it's wise to do this and, you know, kind of just thinking about the United States' place in the world. But I think when we start to, we start to filter a layer like you said, on of geopolitical focus on a particular area, it can kind of make our voting and how we think about politics wonky. And so I think just to, um, us, to me, it feels saner in some ways when, when you kind of remove some of those views, those flawed views, uh, when you think about voting and politics. All right. So Jared is the final listener who wrote to us. He asked four questions that I just feel like, Jared, we're going to need to ask you to like, give us a better jumping off point here. Cause I, th- Maybe this is a whole nother podcast. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read what Jared wrote. He said, as someone who was raised Baptist and then non-denominational, I wasn't even aware that there were differing points of view until I read a textbook by Millard Erickson. That's what I read in Was college. He, wasn't he one of your profs? Yeah. Well, his understudy was. Okay. So D- Dusty was a Millard Erickson reader in college. And he said, even then, Erickson's discussion treated all mill and post mill as side notes. I was hoping that if you release a second episode on this topic, which is what we're doing right now, Jared, you could cover the following. Number one, the role of the church in the present age. Number two, the role of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost. Number three, sanctification. Number four, the limits of Edwards Christian perfectionism. And Jared's argument is um, that eschatology, or sorry, the theology of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of sanctification seem to have connections to our eschatology. Chris, I... I don't entirely understand Jared's whole question there, but maybe you are seeing some things I don't see. Can I take a stab at answering? Please. Question number one, the role of the church in the present age to preach the gospel and make disciples. Question two, the role of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost and what is it accomplishing in the present age? Convicting the world of sin, making believers more like Jesus. Uh, sanctification, yes, it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> the limits of Edward's Christian perfectionism, yeah, there's limits. Wow. <laughs> There you go. You, wow. <laughs> Sorry, you answered yeah. the questions. Yeah, I, I am. I mean, Edwards is one of my uh, favorite theologians, but this, you know, with as with anything with Edwards, he's such a careful, precise thinker that I'd have to go back and look at everything that he he wrote on this. Um, can Christians be perfect in this life? No. Can we grow in godliness? Absolutely. Should we continue to grow and mature? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, sanctification is a real thing. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. So we should have an expectation of growth, but also realizing that until Christ returns, there's always going to be sin we have to battle with. I just want to point out, Jared, that the Holy Spirit is a he, 
not an it. That is true. Uh, you said the role of the Holy Spirit and what it is accomplishing in this present age. And I just always want to say the Holy Spirit is a person. So let's use a personal pronoun, not an impersonal one. That's just that's just my little grammatical tick coming out because wow. I wow. just feel like, man, when I just want people to know like, well, the Holy Spirit is one of the one of the persons of the triune Godhead. And so, you know, let's use a personal pronoun there. I suspect what Jared is driving at here is how do I have a lot of room for the Holy Spirit in sanctification while holding to a particular view of eschatology? Possibly. And, and I think he's trying to figure out what's more important there, maybe. In his email, however, he says he leans post-mill because of these two topics in particular, the, the theology of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of sanctification. And maybe, Jared, what you're saying there is that the reason you lean post-mill is because of what you understand the Holy Spirit to be doing right now in the world. And if it, if what Chris said is true, that the Holy Spirit is at work right now to to make us more like Christ, then that, that we could expect that to have societal effects as the Spirit goes forward and does his His work in us and in, in the church. So, Jared, you're going to have to uh, give us a little more elucidation. I mean, we're going to have a podcast number three on the millennium is what it sounds oh my. like to me. We're trying to break a record. Didn't we have like seven or eight episodes on like fertility and oh, wow. yeah. all of that? Yes, yeah. we did. We did a lot. That was yeah. Those that was back before 2017 or around 2017. Mm -hmm. Back in the early back when days. we were on the stage at Birch Street. That's right. Back when we were trying to reduce the echoes in our microphones enough that you could actually hear what we said. Maybe you record a thousand podcasts on the millennium. That's an amazing idea. A literal number. Wow. Just go for it. <laughs> That's an amazing idea. This is podcast number two of the thousand. Uh, so if we haven't answered a question that you have as a listener or if uh, if we've left something out that you'd like to hear us cover, uh, feel free to let us know. It, it was great to hear from a bunch of listeners and I, I this is a topic that we just need more good biblical thinking on and so I'm, I'm excited to hear that people felt like, okay, that was helpful to sort of understand the four views of the millennium. I hope this episode and understanding those four different ways of interpreting revelation that that's equally helpful and that some of these questions resonated with you as well. Um, so, yeah, don't mean to be uh, too cynical toward our dispensational brothers and sisters, but Chris and I and Dusty are all overcoming some various, various... <laughs> when you've had the conversations we've had, yeah. it's hard not to be. Yeah, we've had some strange conversations with some folks over the years, so we love you all out there, regardless of what your view of the millennium is, but hope that, uh, that this is helpful. And yeah, if you'd like to hear us tackle some additional things, feel free to let us know what they are. Thanks to listeners who reached out and uh, ask some questions and give us a chance to talk about this in more detail. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.